Please open to Luke chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 26 to 45. Luke 1, 26 to 45. This is the inerrant word of God. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Well, here we are, another December. Christmas is upon us, and as you know, it is a time of great celebration, fellowship, family, friends, good food, and a lot of festivity. I personally enjoy Christmas lights and Christmas trees and wreaths. I enjoy decorating my house. Um, But in the midst of all of that, you, I, we all are reminded yearly by faithful preachers of the gospel that stand behind pulpits. We point out why Jesus came. Because it's easy to get caught up in all of the nonsense that goes along with the Christmas season. And can I get an amen? Amen. We'll all say amen to that. We do every year. (laughs) But men, faithful men of God, preach why Jesus came. He came to be the savior of souls. Jesus came to die. Jesus came to pay the price for the sins of many. That is all true. That's all essential. However, in his coming, there is a much broader context for which we will look into this morning by God's grace. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 says that all of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God 
with us. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not about his infancy, beloved. It is about his deity. God with us. The greatest condescension that the world has ever or will ever experience. God with us. However, there's a much broader context. Can there be? Yes. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 The angel said to Joseph, the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The glorious name above all names, Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua or Heshua. Means Jehovah will save. Jehovah saves. God saves. And in perfect, preordained timing, he came. God in the flesh. The Apostle Paul wrote that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Still yet, The context is even broader than that. So from a human standpoint, this young girl, this Mary, this young virgin who conceived this son, brought forth a son, laying him in a manger was the event that set into motion all that God had promised from eternity past. Jesus His coming, it was not some knee-jerk reaction on the part of God when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. His birth was planned. And it was established before the very foundations of the earth, before they were laid. His birth then was set into motion and fulfilled all the promises of God at the time of his birth. So in response to this glorious good news from which our brother Junior read this morning, that she would give birth to the Lamb of God, Mary's response in the form of a song signifies for us the scope of God's redemptive plan. It's recorded right here in verses 46 to 55, known as the Magnificat. Derived from the Latin of verse 1. Of the first verse, rather, of the Magnificat, verse 46. I'll begin reading in verse 46 through verse 55. Mary's response now, notice. My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You who grew up Catholic, did you get that? And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. 
He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and set away, sent away the rich empty-handed. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This ends the reading of God's word for this morning. Our focus of study. So if you would, please join me in a time of prayer that God may bless our study this morning. Holy Father, we come to you in desperate need. And we ask that you'll provide grace for us this morning. Holy Spirit, open our eyes. Illumine our hearts to receive the glorious truths that are before us this morning. May you bless your dear people, your glorious bride. May they be built up in the faith to understand your grandeur, your greatness, your power, your glory, and the significance of your coming. Touch the hearts and lives of those who are dead in their sin. Give them life, we pray. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. A couple points before we get into our study. One thing that stands out is we see uh, Mary's confidence here. Confidence in the message of the angel that this was God's truth. That this is the truth of Almighty God. And out of all the women that God possibly could have chosen, he chose an unknown and very unassuming woman. She was not the daughter of the wealthy, nor of the influential. She was not some king or princess, but she was lowly and she was poor. And as godly and as submitted as she was to the will and the purposes of God, she was still a sinner in need of God's grace. Again, verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. But why did he choose this woman? It wasn't because of Mary's worthiness in and of herself. No personal merit that God would select this woman. But rather, bottom line, it was because of God's sovereign choice. And if you've been here for any extended amount of time, you know it's all because of God's sovereign will and His sovereign purpose. This highlights for us that God grants abundant grace to His chosen ones. You've experienced that yourselves if you are in Christ here this morning. Now, our focus this morning will be verses 54 and 55. So let's look at those for a moment. I'll read it again. Verse 54, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his descendants, how long, beloved? Forever. Forever. The main point this morning is this. The birth of Jesus Christ is the gateway that opened the way to fulfilling every divine prophecy spoken from heaven. 
In other words, his birth is the first step in fulfilling all of God's redemptive promises. The birth of the Lord. In verse 54, Mary summarizes here the very substance and the very nature of his most certain prophetic promises. And it's all wrapped up in one word. Mercy. Mercy. And then verse 55 expands that thought, highlighting the covenant that God gave to Abraham and his seed, his offspring. Emphasizing the fulfillment of salvation history, as we shall see here this morning. So the culmination of God's promises in time past is summed up with this one word, mercy. You don't want to forget that. You want to write that down if you're taking notes. From the promise of the seed to the woman, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, there was a promise made that he would come, the promised one would come, and he would crush the head of the serpent, but in the process, his heel would be bruised. From that promise to a promise of, the, of land for the Jews to the promise that, uh, that there would be a son to occupy the throne of David. All those promises ultimately are a promise to send Jesus. There's two pillars of promise that are our focus this morning outlined for you in your bulletin. Pillar number one are the promises made and applied. Promises made and applied. And pillar number two, promises remembered. So to whom then were these promises given? And the answer is right there in verse 55. Verse 55, promises made and applied. As he spoke... This is Mary now. Remember, this is her, this is her song of praise to God. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, to some, as they read the Magnificat, this song of praise, these words seem only to apply to Abraham, the forefathers, which would mean this simply belongs to the Jewish people. And if we read the Old Testament in isolation, from the New Testament, then it would indeed appear that way, wouldn't it? But when we read the New Testament, especially Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, we see that it's not only those who share in the ethnic bloodline of Abraham who were heirs of promise, but rather it's those who share Abraham's faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit to be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through, through the gospel. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you what? You 
are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to the promise. You see, we Gentiles, we've been grafted in, as Romans 11 tells us. But while many who were the ethnic seed of Abraham are mere descendants, but not children. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all what, beloved? Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. You see, this is exactly what Jesus said to the Jews back in John 8. We were there months ago. Those religious Jews had Jesus surrounded once again. And notice in John chapter 8, they're laying heavy claim on their lineage here. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Now notice what Jesus does. Verse 37. I know, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did also. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. So as they're making heavy claim to their lineage back to Abraham, Jesus provides this interesting distinction in his choice of words. He concedes there in verse 37, yes, you are Abraham's descendants, but you're not his children. To this group. And they knew exactly what he meant by what he said, beloved. He made it clear, if God were your father, you'd love me, just as Abraham did. But they were not part of the true family of faith that Abraham was the father of. Because they didn't embrace Jesus. And in response to this absolutely assaulting truth, notice verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, if we as Christians do not understand the distinction that Jesus makes here, then we will not understand Mary's hymn of praise, period. How can we? 
It would make the Magnificat, as well as Abraham's family of faith, irrelevant for us today. Paul makes the same point as Jesus here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his, his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of those promises of old, beloved, are channeled down through God's divine conduit, in this case, Abraham, a means to an end. Promises made to Abraham and to his seed, not seeds as referring to many, but rather one that is Christ. You see, we are united to him by faith. United to who? We're united to Abraham by faith, whether you're a believing Jew or a believing Gentile. Whether you live 2,000 years before Jesus Christ's earthly visitation or 2,000 years after, all true believers are connected. Old Testament, New Testament. And it's not because of race. Again, it's not because of grace. It is only because of grace. Grace alone. That's who these promises were made to. And that's the point of Mary's praise. All of God's elect in Christ throughout time. Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. That's the point of verse 55. God's elect throughout time are of one spiritual lineage. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 11. Note. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one, what? Origin. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Christ, our elder brother. Hard for me to say. But that's what he says. Not ashamed to call them brothers. Referring to all who look to Christ by faith, just as Abraham did, beloved. Now, there's a lot of popular teaching going around today that refers to the glorious promises of, uh, of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as being fulfilled apart from Christ. In a kind of disconnected thousand-year reign on earth where the Mosaic sacrificial system and temple ordinances are reinstituted, actually. That's the theology of these popular end-time novels that are going around today. You have to be careful when you read that stuff. You don't want to build your theology from a fictional novel series. Amen? Amen. Test it in light of Scripture. Because it portrays there that all those Old Testament prophecies are being fulfilled apart from Christ. That's simply not the case. And many people in response to books like that, rather than being on the lookout and waiting for the glorious return of Jesus Christ, they're on the lookout for some spotless red heifer to be sacrificed on a literal altar in a literal temple in Israel. Come on, somebody. I've had discussions with men in restaurants. They read the newspaper and they try to squeeze it into the text. And it gets crazy from there. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, 
after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, from the patriarchs to the prophets to the son, whose revelation, beloved, is final. It's final. So here then, Mary's song is just as much for us as it was for every believing Jew of the day, of her day. Just as it was for Abraham, just as it was for the prophets, through whom God spoke. So that then is God's promise summarized by Mary as his mercy. His mercy. Are you not thankful for the mercy of God? Moment by moment, day by day, for it's this grace in which we stand. And this mercy comes to us in the form of an oath. Covenant. God's covenant. And this, this promise, this is the covenant of mercy for which God remembers. This glorious covenant. That leads us to pillar number two. Promises remembered. Verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance... Of his mercy. Israel's called here and in many other places the servant of God, having been received into the family of God. This is God's, this was God's people. This was where is Israel his elect? Isaiah 41 8. But you know Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descended, descendant of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. He's given help to Israel, his servant. Meaning to lay hold of, to lift up out of ruin. Now, at this time, the nation, the state of this nation was in such toil, such ruin, The people were being misled. They were pushed back and forth between Rome and Herod. And then they're surrounded by the Pharisees and the Sadducees with their twisted theology. Missing Christ. And God is now at this time in history granted the salvation that he had promised to the fathers of the past here in the womb of this young teenage girl. Mary. The times were bad. John Calvin said that the public instruction retained almost nothing pure in her day. Yet in the midst of it all, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, Galatians chapter 4 says. So Mary is saying here that this help has been given to Israel. This is the promise of God fulfilled in Christ, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Revealed by his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, finally his ascension. And in her day, the expectation of Messiah was high. It was very general, however, 
and very and greatly misunderstood. But to people like Mary, there were a few, a few like this young girl who had their faith confirmed on a pure knowledge of Scripture, a pure knowledge of the Word of God. That's why she was able to sing this glorious song. It was so scripturally sound because she had the Word of God by His grace deep in her heart. So she says, in effect, He's made provision. He's given help to his people. He's lifting them up out of ruin by the remembrance, by remembering his mercy. Zacharias, the the father of John the Baptist, he sings a song of praise, a prophetic song. The same chapter, if you look, uh, verse 72. Actually, let's start in verse 69. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember, notice, to remember his holy covenant. Here's another biblically minded man praising God, a prophetic voice now, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. So God shows us his mercy here by remembering. He remembers his holy covenant. So, I mean, what does this mean? Does God forget? I forgot to pick up my daughter from school a couple times or soccer practice or something. Ten minutes after the fact, what I I remember now, I forgot to pick up my daughter. My wife asked me to pick up the dry cleaning. It closes at, I don't know what time, close five. It's 5.15. I remembered. Is that how God remembers? No. No. We actually see this throughout Scripture, the fact that God remembers. God flooded the earth. Just as he said he would flood the earth. Remember? Do you remember? I remember. And then in Genesis chapter 7, excuse me, the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Rachel, Genesis chapter 30. God remembered Rachel. God gave heed to her and opened her womb. In Exodus chapter 2, God heard the groaning of his people in bondage under Pharaoh, under Egypt. He heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. God remembered Daniel in the lion's den. God remembered Jonah in a big fish that God himself prepared to swallow Jonah. He remembered. Beloved, this is simply a human way of speaking about God. He never needs to be reminded of anything, unlike many of us who will go on in older age to suffer from amnesia or dementia. It's not a fun thing to witness, but it happens to many let alone trying to remember what you're supposed to do tonight by 5, 6 o'clock. God does not forget. Remembrance, beloved, is a covenantal term. 
It's a covenantal concept. And when God remembers in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is highlighting for us the fact that he's, he is formally recognizing or identifying a former commitment that he's made with his people. Contract. A pledge. A guarantee. A promise guaranteed to be fulfilled. And what's more interesting than that is that when God says he remembers, he also provides signs for his people that they remember that he remembers. That's grace. There's more mercy. God makes a covenant with his people. And then he provides them a sign for them to remember that he remembers. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, Genesis, for example, chapter 9, well familiar with the story. God said he was going to flood the earth. God floods the earth. God said, verse 12, Genesis 9, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all, get this, for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant. This is God speaking and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. I, he said, I will set my covenant in the clouds, a remembrance to me, God says formally recognizing his promise. A promise to his creation. So God provides a promise, and in addition to that, he provides a sign. And here we have a bow in the sky. Notice it's arched towards heaven to remind God of his promise. And he's obligated, therefore, never to flood the earth again. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's quoting the Lord Jesus Christ there. It has to do with the Last Supper, the ordinances, the Lord's table. For I received, verse 23, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, what? In remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, if we don't do this month to month, we do this monthly. Some brothers um, lead their congregations weekly in the Lord's table. If we didn't do this, which we will never not do it, would we forget what the Lord has done? 
I hardly think so. If you're a true believer, not if you're a true believer, you're not going to forget. So we do this then as a memorial for him. Now, many Greek scholars take this somewhat tricky text and they, many of them agree that it should be translated as follows. Do this as a memorial for me. In other words, when we take the bread and we take the cup, we're actually, in a sense, reminding the Lord just as the bow in the sky reminds the Lord of his promise never to flood the earth again. What are we reminding him of at the Lord's table? Well, in a sense, we we bring as a memorial to him a reminder that the law, the world, the devil, and our flesh no longer has claim on us. He set us free through the finished work of Calvary. This memorial for him is the remembrance of his mercy that signifies his covenant of grace. The glorious covenant of grace. And that's what the elements signify. And they become a, 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 a seal to his people. And how long do we perform this memorial for him? We proclaim this covenantal promise until he comes. Until he comes. So it's much more than than us simply coming to the table to remember. I'm reminded of what the Lord has done for me, probably daily, every time my flesh rises up and I fall prey to my own flesh or temptation, if I just sin in my mind, what happens? I'm a believer, what happens? Conviction of the Holy Spirit. Step 1A of church discipline. Right there, conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm quickly reminded of the price that he paid on my behalf and it makes me oh so thankful. I'm first grieved. I've grieved the spirit. I'm convicted, but I'm reminded that when I confess my sin, I'm washed, I'm cleansed, I'm forgiven positionally once and all from forever, but I must confess my sin and trust that he cleanses me daily. That paternal type of forgiveness versus my positional forgiveness, you see. So I'm easily reminded of that. But what's much more significant here is that this is a remembrance of his mercy towards us. The glorious remembrance of of his mercy. So the signs or, or the elements of bread and wine reminds us that he remembers his covenant of mercy and grace provided for us. For the redeemed for his elect. So Jesus' statement that we are to partake of the Lord's Supper in his remembrance reflects the nature of the Passover as a memorial. Remember in Exodus, God was getting ready to move out the Israelites from under the bondage of Egypt and he establishes the Passover meal, the Passover celebration. He said this, You know, you're to take an unblemished lamb. You're to take its blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lentil. And in Exodus 12, verse 13, he said, The blood shall be a sign for you. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I what? 
when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So as we partake, Christ himself is formally reminded in a covenantal kind of way. Formally recognizing the new covenant that was made in his blood for his people. And we are therefore enabled to serve without fear. Isn't it great to serve God without fear? That we have been saved by grace, we stand in grace, his mercy has come down upon us. He demonstrates his remembrance. And that is that the Son was sent from the bosom of the Father, his only begotten Son. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The Son of God, Jesus Christ. In the world you will have tribulation, Jesus said, but take courage, I have. I've overcome the world. So God's gift of Christmas, beloved, is himself. The covenantal Christmas presence of Jesus Christ, God with us. His presence. The remembrance of his mercy is Jesus Christ. The covenant of remembrance, God remembering this son, this glorious sign that the Lord himself, Isaiah 7, 14, will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. Mercy. So Christmas, as we celebrate it, was established long before, long before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. May we remember this. This Christmas, every day hereafter, Christmas after Christmas. So in order to provide you with the mercy of God in Christ, His only begotten Son, you were already in His mind in eternity past. His elect. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, you were in His mind. Remembrance of His mercy. Synonyms for mercy. Clemency, forgiveness, pity, sympathy, understanding, leniency, benevolence, generosity, forgiveness, grace. And grace. Which really, when you think about it, barely begin to scratch the surface of what Jesus Christ provides to those that have placed their faith and trust in him alone. Listen to the words of Titus. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his what? Mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, declared free from all blame, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Mercy. Now, to stand outside of his mercy, friends, to stand outside of his mercy is to stand outside of Jesus Christ. 
and to be condemned. And the requirement in the end is that you pay for your own sins. That's to face his wrath for eternity apart from him. And I'll close with a reading for you, if you don't know Christ this morning, of John 3.18. or John 3.18. Everyone's familiar with John 3.16. We're going to read beyond that this morning. For God so loved the world, yes. God so loved the world without distinction that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But look at verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. If you're outside of his mercy, you're outside of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, he offers you mercy today. Again, he offers you mercy today. The same mercy that those who are in this room that are in Christ, they are of Christ, they've been transformed by Christ, we rest in his mercy and we stand in his grace. That is offered to you today. God is holy, God is righteous. We're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. He's the only way, he's the only one. And if you're outside of his mercy this morning, it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You turn from your sin and you turn from yourself and you come at the foot of Jesus Christ, at the foot of the cross, and surrender your life and surrender your will and your way to Jesus Christ because he will indeed agree to terms of surrender. These are his terms, not our terms. This is his way, not our way. This is his will, not our will. It's the way of the cross. It's Jesus Christ, the one promised in eternity past, the seed of Abraham, the one who came to the womb of Mary, the one who was born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, would lay down his life. He said, no man takes my life. I have the freedom and the power to lay my life down and I have the power to raise it up again. He's the only way. He's your only hope. He's the only mercy. Come to the light. Repent of your sin and believe. Not about but into Christ and you shall be saved. The remembrance of his mercy. So come to the light because to come to the light is to come to Christ. You come by faith alone. In, beloved, Christ alone. So church, I pray that you'll be edified in remembering the Christmas presence of Christ. The Son of God came, as promised, long, long before he ever came, and you were in mind. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this holiday season of remembrance 
And though, Lord, throughout Christendom, we have taken many pagan holidays and have turned them into remembrances of that which you have done. But, Lord, we know the only true remembrances that are worth anything is that which are written in Scripture, provided for us through the living word which you have given to your people. Bless your people, Lord, I pray this day. Fill us by grace, overflowing with the joy of the Holy Spirit, desiring to know the meaning of the Word, studying the Word, and I pray that this new year would stir up in us by your grace a hunger for the Word, to feed on the Word, to know the Word, to proclaim the Word, to pray for the lost, to minister to the church. Bless your dear people, Lord, I pray. And for those who came in this morning, not under your mercy, but under your wrath, I pray by the moving and the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll cause them to be born into the family of God by grace. Give them eyes to see. Grant them repentance, I pray, that they would come to the cross in submission to the Lord of glory, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.